Okay. Before we commence, let's all take a moment to pay homage to the most merciful one, to the infinitely compassionate one, to the most magnificent one, the unvanquished one, the undefeated one. Oh, I could keep going on. Let us take a moment to pay homage to the most supreme Buddha. He who is our teacher, our master, he who is our guide to deliver us all, once and for all, from all suffering. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa <coughs> we are on a mission today. I need to get you all out of here by left. So in an hour I got to do what I can do, right? Okay. I gave you some homework last week. Didn't I? Yes. I asked you to contemplate on something. What was it? On the body. Yeah? Okay. So let's get into the nitty-gritty and start unpacking this bundle of joy that is the Dhamma and indulge in this ambrosia. How about that? All up for that? Okay. It's very important that you keep to your practice though, because you need to understand why Guru Hamra has been going on about focusing on your virtues and being decent citizens, decent human beings, and being good to others, helping others, looking after each other, being kind and generous, right? Because all of these virtues is what will ultimately help you to understand the Dhamma. As logical as I can make it be, and make it sound, and make it seem to you all, understanding is one, but comprehending is a completely different thing. You can tell the difference by observing someone's behavior. Is it that they just understood it, or have they really comprehended it? Has it made an internal transformation within them? So that distinction between knowledge and comprehension is very clear and very distinct. And all I ask of you is to continue being the wonderful people that you are and looking after and caring for each other. And I don't mean just the people who are here, starting with your parents. Yes, this is why we started with all that. So this is all part of a grand plan. Although I may not give you the whole picture all at once, there's a plan in the back of my mind 
and that is what I enact when you come here. So this is why I started by saying, look after your parents, your siblings, your families, your colleagues, friends, and so on. This is all very important. And being decent human beings, helping each other, giving what you can share with each other, and ultimately aiming for one goal and that alone. Wherever you have to make a choice between Nibbana and worldly pleasures, it must be that by now the choice has become an easier one to make. It would have been in the past as well that it was very easy to make because you had no interest in Nibbana, but there would have come a time where it was a tough choice and now again it should have become an easier choice to make. Okay, So, having said all that, I think we can start to make progress into the wilderness, the wonderful Dhamma, and start to make sense of what this is all about. Alright? Okay. Now, we started talking about the body, and I asked you to, what I asked you to contemplate on was to think about parts of your body and ask this question what has the sense of belonging got to do with it serving its purpose? Right? This is the best I can draw, I'm afraid. That's good enough for someone who's never done art, right? The hand serves a purpose. This hand, if you are able to fix to anybody, it would, provided of course we can sew it up in the right order, and the right nerves go in the right places, the vessels in the right places, and the bones are attached properly, it will serve the same purpose without, without problem. So, a sense of belonging that this is my hand serves absolutely no purpose. The only thing it gives you in addition to the purpose being served is a sense of fear and a sense of grief. Because the moment you begin to feel that this is your hand, you become responsible for it and you become the caretaker of it, you become the protector of it, you become the guardian of it and all that, all that stuff you need to you become responsible for. Okay? We know that for a hand to work, so I'm just going to say this is the elbow, shoulder, right? These are muscles. You need a very vivid imagination. I couldn't do this without you. And I mean it in every little way. 
Okay, so shoulders, right? When the hand wants to do something, and you know what I mean by that, because the hand doesn't really want to do anything. Say I want to pick up this pen. So we talked about this last week in the Singhala sermon, but I'm bringing it here so it, everyone understands it better. If I want to pick up this pen, there are a lot of things that need to happen for this result to manifest. To be honest, I haven't really picked up a pen. That is the outcome. Let me tell you what I've really done. To find out what's really happened, let's go ask the fingers that are in direct contact with the pen. Right? Let's go ask the fingers. Fingers. Why did you pick up the pen? Was it your intention to pick up the pen? Did you want to pick up the pen? Why did you pick up the pen? The fingers will have a very simple answer to that question. All they'll say is, beats me. I don't know. All I did was surrender to a command. There was an order that came up from above and said, pick up or bring, come closer. These muscles were ordered to contract. And upon that instruction, the muscles contracted. That resulted in the pen being pinched. Yeah, so that's how that happened. So therefore, your fingers will say, you know what, sorry, I couldn't help it. There is nothing I could do about it. It was not my choice. When these muscles contract, you know very well that these fingers have no choice but to do that. Have you all been subject to the knee-jerk test at some point? Yes? If you've never been there, uh, I'm not sure you've got enough room here to do it, but if you ever get a chance, you can try it. So you put one knee over the other in that sort of fashion, right? So that this, the, uh, this knee that is on top, or that this leg is free to move, and then use uh, some, a rubber hammer is what they normally use, and they tap the knee. Which knee? The knee on top. What happens then? Yeah. So the, the leg lifts up. It goes up like that. Why? Is that because the leg wants to do that? No. Because when it is triggered, this part of the leg, so let's say this is a chair, you sat down on it. This is the other leg. You keep it like that. And you tap here, the knee joint. This leg will start moving. You can't stop it. Reason for that is you don't need anything other than <clears throat> excuse me, a stimulus here, a trigger to get the leg to move. Because that is what makes the leg move. So really it is not intention that makes the leg move. There's a process that works in this part of the body. This is purely biophysical. There's, a, there's physics involved here, there's biochemistry involved here, so all that together makes the leg move. Okay? So for the leg to move, all you need is a process, a mechanical process that makes it move, and a chemical process because you need, there's a 
all of the chemistry that goes on in there, the movement of ions and so on, that makes the leg move. Now, in much the same way, for the fingers of the hand to make any movement, you don't need intention. What you need is the physical process that happens on the inside. So when these muscles contract, you can't stop the fingers from coming together, from clenching. So therefore, when you say, I picked up the pen, it begs the question, what part of it did you really do? So here's what I'm asking you. When you say, I picked up the pen, what part of that did you really do? What are you taking credit for? So let's go ask the muscles, why did you, why did you contract? Okay, so the fingers are saying, don't know, ask the boss. So we walked up to whoever was responsible for those fingers and we asked the muscles, why did you, why did you, why did you contract? And the muscles go, don't know, there was a command and I could not help but surrender. Right? So there was a command, there was, a, there was an instruction that came from the nerves, from the motor neurons, and when they came, I, could, I couldn't help it, I had to. So therefore, the muscles claim that you know, they are guilt-free, there's nothing we could have done, it was not my part to decide, I just did what I, was, what I had to do. Then we walk up to the nervous system. Right? So we go to the nervous system and ask, why did you send that signal? Why did you send a signal to, to, to pick up this pen? And the nervous system will say, um, when I say nervous system, I'm ignoring the brain here for a second. Okay, so this is purely the nerves. You ask the nerves, why did you do that? And the nerves will say, the brain sent a signal, and all we did was carry that signal to the muscles. So if you're asking anybody, who should you be asking? Ask the brain. So we go to the brain and say, Mr. Brain, why did you do that? Why did you send a signal to pick up the pen? And when asked the brain, the brain will say, don't know. There was, a, there was a command that came to me and therefore I had no choice but to send a signal down this neuron. And that's all I did. And who's that who sends the signal to the brain? That's the mind. Now, at this point, I'm going to stop. I, we've come to the mind now. Okay? So do you understand that when the mind delivers a signal, when the mind generates a signal, when the mind transfers a signal to a working system, if it's working in the way that it's designed to work, then all the body will do is obey that command. There's a saying among people, the mind is willing but the flesh is weak. You've heard that? The mind is willing but the flesh is, but the flesh is weak. They're just using the body as a scapegoat. That's just, you know, getting themselves a get-out-of-jail-free card for getting up to all sorts of mischief. You know, I wanted to do it, but I couldn't stop myself from doing it. It was the body that was weak. What rubbish! No, the body is always willing. So we need to turn it on its head. The body is always willing. What is weak? The mind is weak. So those who do not like to take responsibility for their actions will say the mind was willing, but what to do, hello? The body was weak. It was the flesh. Oh, yes, 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 of course. 
when you're older, now the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak. You can use it. You can use it there. I'm talking about things where you know people use this as excuses, right? When they get up to all sorts of mischief, because that's what we're trying to stop. You know, old age and what happens after that. There's nothing we can do about it, right? But what we are talking about here, what Buddhist philosophy is for, is to strengthen the mind so that you don't end up doing things that you will later regret. Yeah, and for which you will later have to suffer the consequences. So the body does nothing other than respond to the mind's commands. Now, you know that the way the nervous system is designed, this is the, the brain, I'll take the example of the uh, optic nerves. So these are the eyes. Right? <coughs> the nerves at the back of the brain, they, they switch like this, don't they? So you have the two hemispheres, and the nerves from the left-hand side go, are controlled by the right-hand side of the brain. Is that the right? That's, that's, that's the right. And, the, and vice versa. Okay, so this side is controlled by this side, this side is controlled by the opposite side. That is the makeup of the body. That's how the body works. So without getting into detail as to why it's the way it is, that's not the focus of our discussion here. When the mind wants to, say for instance, lift the right arm, did you know when you were younger that this was the makeup in the back of your head? And the, you know, this is how your nervous system was, was made? So did you intentionally instruct the right hemisphere of your brain to lift the left arm? Did you think, right, which hemisphere am I going to send this to? Huh? Only recently, in the time of your lifespan, only fairly recently did you learn that actually these two swapped at the back of the, at the, back of the head, right? So you didn't need to know that for it to work like that. That's just the makeup of the brain. So therefore, there is a mechanism in this constitution, whereby when the mind wishes to raise the right arm, a message that is generated, that uh, coding, some kind of code, gets delivered to the left hemisphere, therefore the right arm is raised. And when you want to raise the left arm, then there's a code that gets generated and delivered to the right side of the brain, therefore the left arm is raised. Now imagine if something were to happen some accident or something, and then they took you to the operating theater, and some mad doctor thought he wanted to play a trick on you, right? So what they decide to do is they decide to rewire it, right? So he thinks he's being funny, right? And what he does is he breaks, the, he severs the connection and does it like that, okay? Now, you regain consciousness after the operation, okay? And uh, you want to get out of the right side of the bed, okay? To get out of the right side of the bed, you will need to raise your right arm and perhaps move your right leg. Now, what will the mind say? The mind will give a command to the brain, lift the right side of the body, right arm, right leg, and so on. What's going to happen? The left side is going to race. 
Yeah? What's going to happen to you at that time? You're like, hang on, what's going on here? You'll be confused, won't you? So you see, the reason that it works like that is because it's not you who decides. Now this is a very subtle thing. Of course, you know, you'll say, but Swaminansa, it was I who decided to raise my right arm. Why are, you, why are you saying it wasn't me who decided? We'll come to that in a moment. Let's just focus on the body for now. When the mind sends a command to the brain and that command is conveyed through the rest of the body, the body has no choice but to respond to that signal. So, it matters not that the mind is not aware of the makeup of the body. So how can you say then that you are raising the right arm and you're doing it intentionally? Let me put it this way. If this were to happen in the operating theatre, right? if you didn't know this, if you didn't know this, what would you do when you want to raise your right arm? What would you do to raise your right arm? You would raise your right arm. Wouldn't you? Like you've always done. You'd raise your right arm. What would you do if you want to raise your left arm? You'd raise your left arm, like you've always done. But, is it that arm that's now going to work? No. So then how can you say, it is I who raised my right arm. It is I who raised my left arm. The truth is, there's a series of causes and effects. There's a process here that determines what happens to all parts of your body. The mind has a role to play, yes, we accept that. The role that the mind has to play is simply to encode your intention and deliver it on the brain. What happens after that is anybody's guess. Now, have you ever woken up with a numb arm? Yeah? How does that feel like? Awful, right? Remember, do you, if you recall the first time that happened, as a kid, I got dead scared. I thought that was it. That's it. I'm never going to be able to use my arm again. Because, you know, that's when I learned that arms can go numb when you sleep on it. You know, imagine that. The kid doesn't know that this is what happens and he wakes up in one morning and the arm doesn't move. He's seen people with, you know, arms that don't move and the guy, poor guy thinks what? Oh, God, that's it. But I'm only six. Why does that bother you? It bothers you because you have an intention to raise that arm so the intention that the mind has has encoded the, this mental message into one that the body can understand, that your nervous system can understand, it has delivered to the brain. But, and the brain will attempt to convey that message down through the muscular system and through the skeletal system and so on. But because it's gone numb, that chemical flow does not happen and therefore the arm does not respond. So what lesson can we take from that? All of this, right, I, I know I keep, I'm keep, I keep going on about this, but I need you to really understand that all of this is simply a machine that works according 
to a process, a multitude of processes. As I explained to you this morning, there are three things we need to be able to distinguish very clearly from each other. If you are able to clearly distinguish these three things, you'll go a long way. And these three things are the mind, body, and, and a sense of self. As I explained to you this morning, medical science has now taught us that there are two distinct elements that make up this stuff, and that is the mind and the body. But what it has been incapable of teaching us thus far is why do we feel that the mind and body belong to me? There's a sense of self that medical science, in my humble opinion, will never figure out because that has to be shown by a Buddha, how that works. So you'll recall from your science lessons, from, from your biology lessons at college, that there was clearly a workup, uh, how the, you learned how the mind works and you learned how the body works. Less so about the mind and more so about the body, because I think the study of the mind happens much later, maybe at college or maybe at university level is where people really start talking about the mind. But we do learn quite a bit about the, you know, the digestive systems and the respiratory system, the circulatory system, the reproductive system and so on. And we learn quite a bit about the physical body, right? From early school years, we, we learn quite a bit about that. So we understand that this is a machine. This is a machine that works according to commands that is sent by the mind. What we don't get is, how do we tackle this feeling of, this is my body and this is my mind? This body that you've brought along here, whose body is it? Is it my body? Whose body is it? It's your body, right? Yeah. You feel it's your body. That's why it annoys you when a mosquito comes and lands on it and, you know, starts sucking blood. You say, sure, there's so many, you know, go pick on someone else. See? Why do you say that? Go pick on someone else. Because it's okay for a mosquito to be... Huh? Yeah? <laughs> It's okay for a mosquito to be doing that on another person's body, just not on my body. Because you can't see everybody, not everybody, every body as just a body. There are, there's one body in this world that is my body, and then there are all the other bodies. Their bodies and his bodies and her bodies and its bodies, right? But this is my body. That is that sense of belonging we talked about. At the end of today's talk in the morning, I asked you the question, so what? Okay, there's a sense of self, so let it be there. You know, there are things in, the, in this room, right? there's a bottle over there, you know, behind that chest of drawers, and it's been there for months. Hmm? Anyone got an issue with that? No. Why not?
because it doesn't get in the way. Doesn't cause you any trouble, doesn't cause you any grief, doesn't give you any pain, does it? So if someone is not if something's not problematic, if something is not causative of pain and suffering, then let it be. But why are we concerned about this sense of self? Because we have a problem with that. Because when that happens, lots of things, lots of other things happen. This is what the Buddha identified as suffering. Now that is a giant leap from what we've been talking about thus far. Right? It's, a, it's a huge leap forward to say that this sense of self is suffering. Because we've always construed and understood suffering as something very different. If someone hurts my feelings, that is suffering. If someone takes something that doesn't belong to me, that is suffering. If some, one of my loved ones die, that's suffering. That's what we've learned. That's what we've got accustomed to. But now to try and understand that this sense of self is what suffering is. You know, that takes a lot of wisdom, a lot of insight, a lot of patience. And a lot of examination. You really need to think long and hard about this. How is it that is this sense of self that the Buddha identifies as suffering? That is what I have been building up to thus far. When I started to talk to you about the sense of belonging, I attempted to explain to you that this sense of belonging comes from this sense of self. It is rooted in this sense of self. Because this sense of self is what gives you the authority to claim things to be yours. Yes? See, there's a hand. This is part of a body. This is part of a body. There's a mind. Yes, there's a mind that runs inside of this body. It's like the hardware and the software. But what gives me the authority to claim this body to be my body. The mind doesn't do that. What gives the mind the authority to claim that it belongs to itself? That is neither the mind nor is it the body. That is an entirely different entity. Now this is deep, I get it. This is heavy. Okay? That's why I've been trying to delay this as much as I possibly can, but I think it's time we you know, we let, let you loose on this. Yes, that's right. This is like malware on a, on a computer program. So when that happens, all sorts of funny and weird things start to happen. Unexpected things. Sometimes it can even burn the hardware. Sometimes you might wonder, why can't I stop myself from eating? I know it's bad for me. I know that I shouldn't be taking more, I, I, I know I shouldn't be consuming this much, this much fat, I know I shouldn't be consuming this much sugar, but I can't stop myself. You know it. Perhaps, you know, sometimes maybe you're a doctor. You've studied the, the, the working of this for five long years, and you're, you've become a specialist in it. But tell me, are all doctors physically fit? Huh? Are all doctors very careful about what they put inside of them? Are they? Uh, do all doctors go to the gym? No. No. But they'll preach, but they struggle to practice what they preach. Because there's a self inside of them. 
which yearns, things that satisfy it. And the poor body has to suffer. Some people can be, you know, obese or overweight because of, you know, medical faults, you know, faults with the, the, how the body works. But a large, a large proportion of people will be that way because they have not been careful about what they've eaten throughout their lives. But they knew what was right and what was wrong. They knew the right amount of nutrients that they needed to keep the body healthy. But they couldn't stop themselves when they saw something delicious. When they saw something nice. And they knew, I need to stop now. But they couldn't stop themselves. This is when people said, the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak. Which is such a lie. I know this because I've been there. And I've suffered the consequences. There was a time when I was not very careful about what I ate, especially when I first traveled. Right? When we went there and you know, it was just like, wow, didn't know all this food existed. I mean, things you, you had to pay you know, an arm and a leg for here, you could get for a dollar, you could get for a pound. You could get, buy a pizza for a pound. <laughs> Can you believe that? Who wouldn't? No, if you gave them a pound, they'd give you one P back, a change. <laughs> For 99P, you could get a pizza. So, you know, I spoiled myself. Fortunately, I've lived to tell the tale. Most people don't. And after a while, you know, I started to get the blood tests and all when I was feeling a little bit, you know, not too healthy and then I realized that there was such a thing called cholesterol. <laughs> Unfortunately, then, you know, I'm, I'm okay, right? Nothing clinically wrong with me. I'm okay. But uh, I've managed to develop a, a fatty liver. And uh, you'll be... <laughs> You'll find this funny, because I've, I've never taken a drop of alcohol in my life, but when I went to the doctor and he examined me and he says, Swami Nasa, do you drink? <laughs> I mean, you, you can't blame the poor doctor, right? Then I explained to him, no, sir, you know, doctor, it never happened. I've never done that in my life. Ah, okay, then this is non-alcoholic fatty liver. <laughs> So fortunately, there is such a thing as non-alcoholic fatty liver, right? so I had an excuse. Right? Imagine there wasn't one like that. How could I save face? Wearing a robe, going to the doctor and saying, do you take drinks? But you know, today I, I, I have to live with the consequences of that. You know, I'm alright, so you don't need to worry, I'm, I'm okay. Right? I can do this for a few more years. Right? I'm alright. But I know that this is because I had a self that couldn't be satisfied with a full stomach. It needed more. It kept asking for more and I didn't know what to do about it. When the urges came, I didn't know how to fight it. I didn't know. Courage? How long? Willpower? For how long? They're good. But it doesn't st- no amount of courage and no amount of willpower is going to stop you feeling the urge. 
I'm just talking about the urge for food, you can apply to other things. Right? Urge for food can be considered quite innocent compared to some of the other urges. Right? So you can't stop yourself from feeling that way. Courage and willpower will only take you so far. But after that, it keeps on burning on the inside. How long can you keep fighting it? Until at one point you're going to have to give up and let go. Or give in even. It's not the body that needed it. It's not the mind that needed it either. Because, here's the reason. Do you know what the mind is, actually? What is the mind? Let's take a moment to understand what the mind is. The mind is in fact a characteristic. The mind is simply an instrument that allows you to recognize and identify things. Stimuli that it receives from the outside world, the mind's job is purely to identify and to recognize. So we talked about the five R's. Do you remember them? Receive. What was it? What else was it? Uh, recognize. Then. Um, I can't remember it now. Can you? Respond was one of them. Hmm? Perceive. Perceive was the last one. So let me write it down on the board. Let's remind ourselves. Last we had perceived. There was one to recognize. Record. Was it record? Record. Oh yes, record it was. Thank you, sir. Recognize. Respond. Thank you. The mind's function is to do these things. Not to want cake. The mind doesn't want that. You see, the mind can receive stimuli that comes from the outside world. And that could be one of six things. And what are those six? Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mental thought objects. Like memories, for instance. You, know, you can be reminded of something that happened yesterday, or you can have a, a creative imagination of something you might want to do tomorrow. Right? These are all mental objects. You don't need your five senses working to be able to do that. So one of these six things the mind shall receive. Once it receives it, it has to record it. Re or rather register. Yeah, register. Register that this has happened. So. By register, you know, register has lots of meanings. So the, 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 the meaning I, 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 I'd like you to think about in this context is to, like, uh, uh, the register that you have in the classroom. Right? The name register, and they call your name, Sunil, yes ma'am, the mark on the register is present. So the mind has that function as well. It has a function of registering 
what has been received. Okay, so I'm going to write register here. What has been received? It's like, you know, something comes and it holds it. So now it can inspect it. Yeah, so you need to hold it so you can inspect it. Then you have recognize. Now recognize is very interesting in, its, in the way it's, it's made, this word. You have re and cognize. Cognition is to grasp to understand something, but to recognize requires a repeat of something, meaning it's something you've seen before, something that has come to you before. Therefore, you will need to refer to your memory to be able to recognize or recognize. Then the mind has the job of responding. The mind has a job of responding to that stimuli. And finally, all of this together. So for instance, you know this is a clock. And the clock tells me that in a 15 minutes I need to let you go. <laughs> what a day to pick to choose to, to teach you this stuff, to, to teach you about this topic, right? So the clock, the mind knows that this is a clock and is used to read the time. Right? That is part of the response. That's why I don't take this and start munching on it. Because the mind understands that the response to a clock is not to chew on, but to read the time. The mind understands that the response to a pen is to write. These are all responses that the mind has. So tell me, wouldn't an arahant know what to do with a pen? Of course. So in becoming an arahant, does he kind of get rid of that? No. The response is there. Nothing wrong with that. All of them together gives you the entire picture of what that stimuli was all about. So therefore, when I show you a pen, all these things will have happened by the time you perceive that this is a pen. Can answer this question for me, please? Can you perceive that this is a pen and not know that this is something you can write with? Can you? No. I say water. Can you stop yourself from thinking it is something you can drink? Or something you can use to wash yourself with? No. Because that is all part and parcel of your perception of water. Does that make sense? Yeah? So, all part and parcel of your perception of what something is. So, when we talk about perception, it's all of the above. So, in the Buddha's own words, he says, without this, without that, without that and that, you're never going to get this. Without Rupa, without Vedana, without Sanya, without Sankara, there is no coming, no going or an instance of vijnana, which is this perception. Those are also the Pali terms. Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and vijnana. This is the function of the mind. The body does a wonderful job of bringing various stimuli for the mind to receive. Does that make sense? Because the body has eyes, so therefore it can bring sights. For what? So the mind can receive them and ultimately perceive them. So how do you know that these are flowers? Talk me through the process. Eyes don't see flowers. Let's get that straight. Eyes have never seen flowers and they never will see flowers. Eyes are only 
sensitive to light, not flowers. That is why if there was no light here, you would not see the flowers. So the eye never saw flowers. The eye only saw light. Because at the back of your eye, in your retina, you have receptors that are sensitive to flowers. Hmm? Which way? No. You have rods and cones which are sensitive to various frequencies or various wavelengths of light waves. They'll only be triggered by light energy. And let me share with you something really interesting at this point as well. Now, think carefully before you answer, okay? You see this lid here? Hmm? What color is it? Don't hesitate. <laughs> I say, yes, think carefully. I didn't say don't think. <laughs> what color is it? Blue? You sure? Will you believe me if I said, no, this wasn't blue? So what, it's black then, Swami Lanza? No, 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 this is not that test from last week or the week before that. This is not a trick test. No, this is a blue pen. I'm asking you, what is this color? The color blue does not exist in this pen. It's not here in this lid. Ah, let's get there. Okay? Because you know, I'm sure most of you will know, that when this is the brain and this is the back where you're sensitive to your... So this is the... Uh, uh, what nerve do you call it? Optic nerve, thank you. So the optic nerve carries signals to the back of the brain, right? Most of you will know this. Now, if I drew the eye, which is something like this, you have the retina and you have your rods and cones here. Now, these things, they have nerves which all aggregate here and to go on to become the optic nerve, right? Do you, have you ever heard of a nerve that carries light rays? Alright, so nerves don't carry light waves. All they are capable of carrying is electrical waves. Now, what color is electric? So where is, how, how can you say this is blue then? Because if you are seeing the blue in this lid, then that blue has to travel all the way from this, through the eye, to the optic it has to be blue all the way, right? And then to the back of the brain, and it still has to be blue. If it's the blue in this that you're seeing, really what you're seeing is not the blue in this. These are pigments. This object has pigments. These pigments reflect light, as a good gentleman said there. These pigments reflect light. When light falls on this, white light, right, it will, as we learned, it absorbs all other frequencies except for blue, and that blue is what gets reflected. So really, we don't know what color this is, or even if it has a color. To be honest, I don't think it even has a color. What it has are pigments. It has pigments. It is the mind that interprets light that is reflected from this as being blue. So really, colors don't exist in the outside world. Can you believe that? 
Yeah. Colors don't exist in the outside world. You know, you think this is a very colorful world. What a lovely world. You know, look at these flowers. So colorful. Colors don't exist in the world. Pigments do. All pigments do is reflect selective frequencies of light, light waves. These are electromagnetic waves. And electromagnetic waves, which at the optic nerve or at these rods and corn cells, they're, they're converted to electricity. This is a charge that travels from the brain. So what color is current? What, what color is electric current? Now, it is obvious, isn't it, even if there was color in light, then at this point, you can no longer talk about it. So really, these colors that you see, they don't exist in the outside world. They're all perceptions. Because the mind can do a wonderful job of perceiving things in creative and very imaginative ways to make this world livable for you. Even at the brain, there's no such thing as color because the brain does not have anywhere to hold color. There's no such thing in the brain. Again, these are nerve cells which transfer messages between each other through synapses, through neurotransmitters and so on. That's all that happens. So we have chemistry, we have electricity, we have physics. There's no color. So the only time color can really be understood is when it reaches the mind. Therefore, color is a perception. Now, do you know how the tongue works? Tasting? Really interesting stuff. I'm sharing this with you not so that you can become consultant anatomists. It's so you can understand how this is simply a body that is simply a machine and it's simply something to, you know, that we, we, we give it more credit than it deserves. We think of it far too much than we need to. I remember, because my dad used to be a science teacher and I, he, he taught me science, and I remember the lesson in which he taught me how, this, how there was an artificial sweetener, one called saccharin. Now, I remember the lesson where he taught me how saccharin works and why the tongue tastes it as sweetness. The reason for that is the tongue, the tongue has various receptors. Now, you know that in the tongue, there are various parts of the tongue that are receptive to or sensitive to various tastes, right? So there's sour taste, sweet, salty, and so on, like bitter, right? This is because the receptors in the tongue have various shapes. Now, let's imagine, I'm, I'm making this far more simple than it really is, but it, that's sufficient for our understanding. Imagine this was the uh, a receptor on the tip of your tongue, which is sensitive to sweet, right? This is the shape of one of those receptors. Now, oh, let's say it's something like this. If a molecule that was this shape tried to come and set in there, would it work? No. So the tongue, these receptors would not be sensitive to any molecule that is of this shape. To be, recept to, to, to be receptive to these receptors, you've got to be that shape. In other words, complementary in shape. 
That's when this fits in nicely and the moment that happens, an electrical signal is generated. <laughs> what a joke. What is generated? Sweet? No. It's an electric current. In another part of the body, there's something, let's say, that, that has, uh, is a receptor like this. Another receptor. So the previous one was like this. This receptor is like this. Now along comes a molecule that is this shape. Does it fit? No. Because to fit into this, you've got to be this shape. Again, complementary. So when that fits in, again, a very similar, almost identical, almost identical to the previous situation, same electrical current is generated. So in two parts of the tongue, there's a tongue, right? A funny tongue, right? This part you have a receptor that looks like this, another part you have a receptor that looks like this. So a molecule that is of this shape cannot fit in there, and a molecule that is of this shape cannot fit in here. So this goes there and that goes here. Both of these receptors will generate an identical electrical current. They'll travel to different parts of the brain. Okay? You see how this is all such a <laughs> just a blooming joke? Right? It all, it all travels to the brain and the brain will then encode that into a signal that the mind can understand, therefore receive and ultimately perceive. So what is sweet? What is bitter? What is sour? These are all electrical signals. Now tell me, if I were to be Dr. Frankenstein and I were to walk up to the brain and do some right, uh, some jiggery-pokery in here and I were to swap these nerve endings when you eat sugar you go yuck and when you eat bitter god you go mmm Do you see what's going on here? See, where's the taste then? These are simply perceptions of the mind. Because the mind wants variety. Can you see how much of a, you know, how much of a mockery of the mind is going on in here? Imagine this, right? The mind comes and says, I want lots of different tastes. Right? The mind says, I'd like to, I'd like to taste different things. So now let's say the mind goes to the body or mind goes to God and God and say, you know, God, I'd, I'd really like to taste a few different things. You know, that would make life so much interesting. And go, all right, don't worry, don't worry, I'll sort it out for you. So what God does is he creates various molecules of different shapes and then receptors also of complementary shapes. And then he just wires them to different parts of the brain and says, right, there you go, have it. What he didn't do was create taste. He didn't create taste. <coughs> But he gave you the impression that you are tasting things. Simply thanks to perception. This is the function of the mind. The mind creates the world in which it lives. It's such a wonderful and fascinating thing. Nothing is as capable as the mind is of creating wonderful, so rich and imaginative worlds in which the mind... It, it's, like, it's like a spider in its web 
It's like a spider in its web. The spider creates the web, he weaves the web, and then it lives in it, right? The mind is much the same. It will create this web of lice. Not those lice. In your hair. Lice, right? Falsehood, lice, and it will live in it. All the time thinking that this is real. It, the mind creates its version of reality. Remember the matrix? Yeah? A, a, a world created in the mind? The same thing happens with you right now. How do you know this is hard? How do you know it's hard? There are receptors on your skin sending electrical signals to your brain, which is then converting that into a code that the mind can read, and the mind is perceiving it as hard. Living becomes a funny business after you begin to understand this. Your perception of the world begins to become a series of cause and effect. It's just cause and effect. This is just all cause and effect. Taste is cause and effect. Color is cause and effect. Smells are cause and effect. The same thing works with smells. The same thing works with smells. Because molecules in the air, they have various shapes. right? And then there are receptors on, on your in your nostrils, which are receptive to those shapes. It's the shape that triggers that smell, not the smell. There is no such thing as a smell in an object. It's an electrical signal. So the brain can't perceive smell. It, the mind has to step in. Because at the brain, it's just electrical signals. What electrical signal has a smell of roses? In which case, you should you know, hold a live wire and hold it to your nose and see if it smells of rose. It doesn't work like that, because you need the mind to perceive. So therefore, do you see now that sight, sound, smell, taste, touch? These are all perceptions. Perceptions of the mind. That is the job of the mind. And there's no problem with that. That's perfectly fine. It's okay that this is perceived as blue. There's nothing wrong with that, because that does not cause suffering. The problem is, when we overstep the mark and we ignore the function of the mind and we try and get it to do all sorts of other things because of ill indoctrinations, misinterpretations, misunderstandings, it's when that happens, the mind begins to expect something completely different, something that does not exist. And when that happens, the mind goes into an insanity mode which we'll need to talk about in, in more detail. Right? So we're getting there one step at a time. Right? But this sense of self, you see, you know that this pen does not have a sense of self. You know that when it reaches the back of your eye, there is no room for a sense of self to be generated. I mean, you know, it makes no logic. You know, how can a self, sense of self be generated there? You know that electrical signal cannot have a sense of self. You know that the brain cannot have a sense of self. right? And you know also that uh, the brain encoding a message and delivering it to the mind, can, you know, there's no room for a sense of self to come in, to kick in. But at the mind, all sorts of things can happen. Because the mind is capable of perceiving. And the most wonderful and the most weird thing about perception is, perceptions can be right or wrong. There can be right perceptions and there can be wrong perceptions. 
When you perceive things rightly, you're okay. But if you perceive things wrongly, then that is the beginning of suffering. So the reason that you feel a sense of self, which in turn gives you the sense of belonging, is because there's a misperception. What really goes on, we need to try and understand. When you begin to understand what's really going on here and how this sense of self is generated, then you begin to realize that this is only a feeling, a sensation of a self, but truly it's something altogether different. That's when we can say, yet you have seen what suffering is. That is something you can only through your, see through your wisdom eye. So that's where we're going to get to. Before I conclude for today, let me just quickly wrap up what we talked about to today. Because I'm conscious I want to send you and make sure you all get the opportunity to engage in the almsgiving as well. Let's quickly go through this once more. Your last week's homework was to think about parts of the body and ask yourself the question, is there any added value in this sense of belonging? You understand now that the sense of belonging does not add any value whatsoever. With or without a sense of belonging, a part of a body will serve its purpose, will serve its function, provided that it's operational, provided that it works as it's supposed to work. Right? So then I went on to explain to you that there are three aspects we need to understand here. Medical science will help us understand two of them, the mind and the body. You know, as well as I do, that you can feel that there's another entity beside the mind, beside the body. And that is the sense of self. You know that it is not the body because cutting a part of your body off didn't make you feel less of a self, did it? When you donated your blood, if you've ever done that in your life, did you feel less of you then? I don't mean by weight. Hmm? If you lost an arm or a leg, you know, when you went to the barbers and you had a haircut, did you walk out feeling less you than you when you walked in? No, so it's clear that it's not in the body. Yeah? And you shed so many skin cells on a regular basis, right? If you, when you go to the shower, when you just brush yourself, lots of dead skin cells fall off of you and you don't feel one bit less you than you did a moment before that. So it's pretty clear that it's not part of the body. So, good. We can move on from that. Further evidence is that, you know, doing these things does not require yourself to be there. It's simply a series of causes and effects. That is what I tried to prove to you by saying, you know, pick this up, drop this down, you know, and move your arms about, you know, all these things. Put one leg on top of the other, do the knee-jerk reaction test. All of this proves to you that if there's a process, if there are causes, then a result will manifest. This body's functioning is simply a series of causes and effects. So all that is good and well. We now understand that this sense of self cannot be anything related to the body. Yeah? Okay. But it requires further contemplation, because from time to time you'll still feel this, particularly when you walk in front of the mirror and look yourself in there and go, oh, I'm looking nice today. That's a moment to reflect. That's why I said, understanding is one, comprehension is another. It is when you begin to comprehend that you will stop feeling that way. Until then, you will feel it. You will feel you are either ugly today, you are good looking today, you don't look too nice today, you don't feel like walking out looking like that today. Right? You will feel all these sorts of things. 
You, you can only stop that feeling from coming up when comprehension takes place. So that's enough for you to realize that comprehension is still in the process of happening. That's okay though, isn't it? First you understand, then we comprehend, then you know the magic happens. So that's part of the body. Then we will move on to the mind. We now understand what is the function of the mind. The mind receives stimuli from the body with the help of the body. That is that part there. And then from there on, recognition, re- uh, registering, recognition, responding, and perception. These things, these five things take place. Where do you see a self here? No, because there was no stimuli that could have given you the perception of a self. Sight, self? Sight? Self? No, sound, self? It doesn't even make sense. Taste, self? No. Where in a taste do you find self? No, do you, so you see, although the mind's job is to receive, and it does receive, through the help of the five sense doors, there is nowhere where a sense of self is received. So something else is going on here for you to be feeling this sense of self. Are you with me there? Yeah? So these things will happen, but still no sense of self. Therefore, we need to come to one conclusion. It ain't in the body and it ain't in the mind. Something else is going on. Something else is going on. Why are we interested in that something else that's going on? What about the bottle at the back of the room? Doesn't bother us. Doesn't get in the way. Doesn't hurt us. But there's something that bothers us. Right? Suffering. We are in pain. We are in grief. We, are in, we get angry. We get, feel jealousy. We feel hatred. Animosity. Right? These negative emotions that kill us on the inside. We need to do something about this. Is it in the body? Is it in the mind? No. Because the mind's job is this. There is no suffering in here. Do you see suffering here? No. Okay. I'll give you that. This is painful. Physical contact with the body. If you burn your body, if you cut your body, that's painful. I'll give you that part. But ignoring that. Physical contact, ignoring physical contact, everything else, sight, sound, smell, and taste. And mental objects, none of them carry with them a package of suffering. That is all constructed within the mind. How does that happen? That's when the mind goes crazy. So a creation of self, the creation of self is, a, is, a, is, is an activity that happens in the mind. How all that works We'll come on to next week. Fair enough? Can I leave you all there with that? Are you all clear on what we've discussed so far? This is very important for us to move into next week's chat, next week's talk. So in case you missed this, I urge you to maybe revisit this once more when you get head back home. Because I'm conscious now, if you want to keep you know, off, offering arms every week, then we're going to have to keep these two one-hour sermons. I can't, I can't take the liberty of extending these to, you know, any, any, any longer than, you know, quarter past 11 or so. Because then you will miss that. Okay, at least for now, you know, while it's, while it's something new, you, you, I'm sure you'll all wish to go and take part in that. So, please go back and revisit this. Take some time to maybe, you'll find this on YouTube. Take, you know, just watch it one more time at least, so you can really get it into your mind. Come back next week, and we'll continue from there. Okay? Right, so before we conclude then, Let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired and to be grateful to all those who have helped us get here, be here, listen to the Dhamma and to help attain our realization. Okay, so let us take a moment then.
To transfer the merits that we have all acquired, by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Trickle Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching, and with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha, and have passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters, who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries, who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us transfer these merits to Guru Swami Nuhansi and all other teachers, as well as all the monks and res- monks resident at this monastery, as well as the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them. May through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plane, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. May through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery who, for the sake of merits, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery to those of you who have passed on. Provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes, and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. May to the power of these maids, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer maids to our mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, nieces, our elders and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. By the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sad, sad, sad. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to the devas, brahmas, spirits, and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambhuddha Sasana. Let us transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may by the power of these merits they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sad, sad, sad. Let us also take a moment to transmit to our ancestors who predeceased us, and to all those who have been friends and families and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara. Let us also take a moment to transmit these merits to the members of the armed forces, as well as the police force, who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. And may, they, may all who have lost their lives in the wars be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us take a moment to transmit to those who have lost their lives in natural calamities, such as tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides, pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing ones, reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in samsara. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to them, and may by the power of these merits they abstain. If any of them have been born in the woeful plains, redeem themselves be born and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. And finally, there is all resolved that may, through the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land, 
And may, by the power of all the mates we have acquired today, you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become an Arhatun Muhanse, an Arhatteran in Muhanse, in this very life itself, and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sad, sad, sad. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. The members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you. <coughs> Raga ginnen midetnva, dvesha ginnen midetnva, moha ginnen midetnva, nibbana parama sukhayen, sukhita tara Nibbana parama sukhayen sukhita tara vetnva Mamada siyalu loka siyalu satnvayo Nibbana parama sukhayen sukhita tara vetnva Nibbana parama sukhayen Sukhita tara vetnva Nibbana parama sukhayen Sukhita tara vetnva Raga gini niveva Dvesha gini niveva Moha gini niveva Divan sapala deva Divan sapala deva Divan sapala deva Tunruvange suvisi ananta maha guna belen Sira loka sira satyoma Nibbana paramasukhen sukhita taravetva Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu